Welcome to Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on this season's topic, grief. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I found that things aren't just black or white or a simple yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there has been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I'll be sharing my own process through personal stories and interviews with others in an effort to help investigate the process of and recovery through grief. If you'd like to share your story, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we start. My stories and the stories of others on this podcast are told through the lens of our own experience. The revelation of our process is ours to tell. If you disagree with the views or stories on this podcast, know that we are not speaking on anything other than our own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Nothing expressed or mentioned in this podcast is an endorsement or is meant to be taken as advice. It is strictly the sharing of our own experiences and recovery. Any feelings this podcast activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on these experiences and choices are yours, and they are not anyone else's burden to carry. Trigger warning, death, brain cancer, sudden death. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Maybe podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. If you are a frequent listener, I thank you so much. And if you're just stopping in today, I hope you'll consider listening to some more episodes. Today, I have uh, Jada Ellingham, licensed psychotherapist and LMFT. You may, if you've listened, if you're a fervent listener of the podcast, you have heard her before. And there's a reason why I keep bringing her on, besides her being one of my very, very best friends, is that she has a master's in this area and she's super, super well versed in helping us figure out all the hard stuff. Um, so today, I'm bringing her on and we're going to talk about grief. Uh, Jada was a professional dancer. That's how we know each other. And she has made a transition to this line of work and she's been very successful in it. And she has, you know, she's also a mother and, you know, she's had a wide variety, I'm sure, of griefs that she may or may not share with you today. But she's definitely in the specialty of dealing with loss and helping helping people process grief. So Jada, welcome back, back, back. This is your third, your third time back to the Gray Maybe uh, podcast. Is there anything you want to add or? Yeah. Let's talk about grief. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the worst thing ever. Everybody, can no, tell me your sadness. No viewers. <laughs> no. Yeah, just let's talk about sad and grief. This is what I've said. This is I've said this in one way or another kind of to every guest. I'm like, why do I pick a podcast talking about things that nobody wants to talk about? 
and listening to things that nobody wants to listen, like the, the things that nobody wants to address. That's what I decide to talk about. So grief is probably the last on the list. I can't think of anybody who really wants to talk about grief. However, you are not going to escape it. No. So you may want to consider uh, picking up some tools because yes. when you're in it, you, you'll you be, you know, probably begging for any kind of tools to get out of it. So Jada and I had a little meeting pre-pod and we just started riffing a little bit about what we wanted to talk about. And she had taught, she brought up the five stages of grief. I know we have probably all heard about the five stages of grief. So if you're, if you're not familiar, uh, I'll give you a review. So this is like a five bullet point, like here's your stages, right? So the first stage is denial, right? You're denying the situation. The second stage is anger, right? You're pissed. Uh, the third, uh, the third stage is bargaining. Like, I don't know if you're bargaining with a God or I don't know, you know, you're just bargaining in your head. Um, the fourth is depression and the fifth is acceptance. And Jada wanted to talk a little bit about the five stages of grief. Cause I think she had an interesting take on it that I always agree with because everything I believe is a little woo woo. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think we need to speak to that. This is basically it's outdated. There's no empirical evidence to support it. So I think we need to know this. Some people are still talking about it and using it as a way to help people um, manage grief. Right. And when we talk about grief and we talk about management of our grief, this is probably as a therapist, what I'm trying to help people stop doing, stop managing right? Stop managing your, your emotions. Stop managing your experience around grief, right? Because if you are doing that, you're going to get yourself into a, a, a greater hole, right? Also, you know, there are things that it doesn't account for. It doesn't account for culture, right? Some people have communal grief, grieving processes, right? Religious grieving processes, right? They are not isolated. They are in a community, um, really feeling connected, right? Uh, there are different belief systems around mortality. And, you know, obviously we, grief is not just around mortality, but, um, you know, these stages don't lend themselves to, to, to really expressing the full experience of what grief can yeah. look like for somebody. It really kind of can stigmatize someone's experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I'm working with grief, most people apologize, right? So they begin to cry or, or they're feeling angry right. and they start apologizing. The other thing that they do, they tend to do is, um, you know, wonder about the timeline, right? No one, no one's got time for grief, right? So like I was, right. I was sobbing. How long am I going to be here? <laughs> How much time do I have to dedicate to this shitty part of my life yeah. right now? Like when, like, do it like next spring, next winter, like yeah, when okay. can I, you know, get my life yes. back and feel better? Yeah, and that's what people are asking me, you know, when is this going to end? Do you have that answer? Can you give it to me right well, now? Or if I, would, if I was influencing, <laughs> I would say with me, it's going to end tomorrow, right? No. And when you're saying that you're, you're saying people guarantee this, yeah. right? Or people kind of allude to this when they're in their, sometimes people who are maybe uh, trying to make money off Exploit of- it helping people, yeah. exploiting people yeah. that they might make, give you those type of guarantees. But in reality, no, it's ambiguous, right? It's fluid. It's 
Yeah. Well, nobody wants to hear that, Jada. Oh we want magic it's, pills. Right. It's gray, right? It's not black or white. It's not <laughs> black or white. And this is how we manage the anxiety of it all, right? And it, not only that, there's a part of it that doesn't, you know, in our, in our sorry, in our culture, in Western culture, um, there's a lot of isolation around grief because we're not okay with emotions, raw emotions. We're okay with what appears to be positive, but we are not okay with someone's experience of anger, um, the injustice of it all, right? With their experience of like that just raw primal sadness because we feel it too, right? And I feel like if you're... Any, if you are a person of color, you could magnify that by three. If you are, you know, when it comes to feelings, if you're a man, double it, you know, like all the different types of, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no room. So in some cultures, it's much harder to grieve because there's no room for grief, right? Meaning culture, meaning, you know, uh, social economic status, uh, race, um, you know, nationality, um, gender, uh, sexual, sexual orientation, right? So there's a whole uh, bunch of different um, factors of what culture is, right? So we have to look at that. That's, that's really going to be the difference too when you're going to a therapist is they're definitely looking at how culture impacts your experience. And hopefully you are. Hopefully you have found someone they, who I is mean, doing that? And if you don't feel like you are, fine. There are people who do that. Yeah, so or, fine. Or, or say it, right? If you feel like you're not being met in therapy, like, you know, culture is not, you're feeling invalidated, let's say. Because let's say you're going to a therapist who doesn't necessarily come from the same culture and you're feeling that, you, 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 you can speak to it. And it's really powerful in therapy to speak to something if you're feeling it's being missed between you and your therapist, right? Um, if your therapist- like for you as a, oh, yeah, I as love a person, it. like for your growth, right? Oh. Like, and also for the therapist to help you, but for your therapeutic growth, if you want to get the most bang for your buck, mm-hmm. voice that. Yeah, you have to advocate okay. for yourself, right? You have to advocate for yourself. That's hard though. You might be in therapy because you don't advocate <laughs> well, for yourself. And that's, and that's a point. So a good therapist is going to know that because if a good therapist right. has take an inventory of all the different things that are, that have contributed to where you are right now, right? Family history, culture, yeah. you know, biopsychosocial, bio, right? Like there's all these factors that you're not going to get with just someone subscribing to the five stages of grief. Right. Right. You just, yeah. you just dive in. Here it is. Where are you at? Yeah. You in anger or you, you yeah. right? No, no, yeah. no. I'm actually feeling Point relieved. Point to the chart. What if you're feeling relieved? Right. Ooh. That's not on there. Ooh. There's something wrong with yeah, me. That's ugly, right? You know, my, my, my parent just passed away. I feel the sense of relief. What? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. My dad was very ill for a long time. He was, I, I don't know what his internal real experience was because I'm not him Mm -hmm. and it was a brain thing and although he seemed to be very aware of who everyone was and what was going on I don't know the depth of that you know Uh, people who are in dementia seem to be living in quite a different Mm -hmm. world than someone who's in has Alzheimer's is someone who doesn't you know it's all very different so I don't know what his internal world was but as someone who relies on their physicality for a great deal of their livelihood purpose experience and joy um, watching him become completely disabled 
uh, where my mother had to do every single thing for him. Um, I couldn't imagine that he was having a great time. Uh, and so when he passed, and luckily it was a fairly quick, you know, in the hospital a week later passing, uh, after we moved him to hospice, like there was a lot of relief um, that he didn't have to do that anymore, that my mom didn't have to do that anymore, that I didn't have to constantly anticipate when that was going to happen or that I wasn't going home enough for his final moments and what was he actually experiencing and is he suffering, you know, like all those things and my brother to, you know, in a similar way, but more because he was closer by. So he had more responsibilities uh, with my mom to help with that, you know, Everybody, I think there was some relief. I think that was universal, even if my family might not have been able to say that word, you know, but I think that was definitely, yeah. So if you're feeling relief, where is that on the five stages of grief? You know, that kind of throws you for a loop. And I think one of the things we discussed previous to um, us starting to record here was that um, to me, having a bullet point of these are the stages you go through was very reminiscent of when I had my knee surgery and I was in physical therapy and they would show me this chart and they would say, this is where you start and this is where you end. And it's supposed to be this like line from the bottom going up at a diagonal, like, you know, a con- a constant upward, uh, you know, diagonal line. And mine was like all over the place. And, you know, I would go in there and sometimes I would have these physical therapists. I only had one that I liked. The rest of them to me were trash. Um, and they made me feel shame about where I was in the process. And I would try to explain them. I'm like, okay, so I'm a dancer and I need to do this, this, and this. And they would kind of be like, that's cool. Why don't you run on the treadmill? And I was like, look, I'm not going to run unless I'm running to an airplane gate. I don't need to be running. It hurts my patellas. Like, let's not. Can I do something else? And when I would, you know, gain more flexibility in my knee, which if you're a dancer, you understand how important flexibility of the knee is to get your leg completely straight. And if you do have a hyperextension to get back that hyperextension, you know, anytime I would get more flexibility, I would lose strength. And they were looking pretty much only for strength because that's all that mattered to them because their professions didn't align. You know, what they thought of as sports and things were not as specific as dance as an athletic, you know, uh, deity. And so it, it reminded it like looking at these five stages of grief, you know, and you saying that it's not linear, you know, you could be cycling through like all of these are are valid, right? Like denial, anger, bargaining, mm-hmm. depression, acceptance. Yes. You may relate to all that. They're also maybe none of, none of it. Right. Or none of it. You may have relief and just be like, thank God, you know, it's over. Mm-hmm. But like, or you could be cycling in and around those things over and over mm-hmm. again and be like, why am I not making my way up this I'm not cha- progress. chart or ladder or down this list? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And then you mentioned that's usually when the, the shame enters, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, there's something wrong with me. Why can't I get over this? And then it gets it's really, really time. complicated, right? So this is where you get into complicated grief, right? Is when you start to obsess around maybe even that. What's wrong with me? Why can't I get through it? So-and-so got through it, right? They're telling me, the, 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 the experts are telling me that something's wrong with me. They're sending me a, a really strong message that something is wrong with me, right? So in therapy... You know, ideally, you, you have a therapist who can just sort of be with the ambiguity, right? One moment you come in and, and, and you, you, you have this heightened realization of, like, some of the values underneath the grief, which is a re- really beautiful thing. And then the next, next session, you're fucking angry. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because underneath all of that is, is 
important experience that really, you know, helps shape, right, and creates that growth. Um, you know, you were talking about, it, society is really about, like, pushing, and we've talked a little bit about this before in, in past uh, podcasts, right, is that, I was going to say past sessions, uh, right? But like we, you know. There are sessions. They're free sessions yeah. for me. <laughs> it's, it's progress-based, right? Our society is progress-based. It's, it's, we need to see progress because we strive, right? But progress is moving through the present moment as it is. It is not an achievable, you know, thing, right? It's not, I'm not trying to okay, so something. Pause pause on that because this is a big deal so a lot of times like if you're in the mind frame of working on yourself going to therapy self-help all the things right and you're you know noticing maybe your character flaws or things that you want to change or your reaction to things a lot of people talk about their progress right like well a year ago I wouldn't have done especially if you're in the recovery rooms you hear people talking about progress a lot you're like a year ago I would have done this this and this instead of today I'm doing this this and this and I think that's interesting that you said it's like in the actual present moment. So it's even less about what happened a year ago or two years ago. It's like in this moment, right this second, mm -hmm. what is what is the progression? Like what is the progress? Yeah. So for example, like let's say I'm working with a client who has had compounded grief, right? Let's say they've lost somebody. And what is what's compounded? Yeah, just walk us is, through. Is is you know experiencing grief and not being able to to um, process it until the next grief occurs. Right. So it keeps compounding. Right. So you haven't processed your grief. Right. So let's say I'm working with somebody and then they start to exhibit or present, um, you know, depressive symptoms. Right. I am really looking at because depression is generalized. It becomes really big and generalized. And so part of the work with depression is really finding the difference. Right. And, and how you do that is finding it in the present moment. So guiding people into the present moment really allows for them to see where there's nuance. This is not in the five stages of grief, right? So like, let's say I'm working. What? With... I've been lied to. <laughs> Everybody has. Uh, right. Yeah. But let's, but it's hard because in the present moment, you have to meet it. And in that you're meeting it, but you're also meeting it in the presence of another person, which is incredibly hard for people really to show up in their grief um, as someone is bearing witness to it. Because really what happens when it's like, you know, moving is that the therapist or whoever, whoever is with that person, doesn't have to be a therapist, can be a, you know, another person, um, a friend, you know, a family member, um, someone in your community, right? The, the transformative, most healing thing is that the person that you're with can feel it too and stay with it. But that's what we don't want to do. That's what's so hard to do. And that really is, yeah. you know, if we're talking about growth, progress, we're talking about being able to be with whatever feeling comes up in the presence of another. And in that way, we give people the room to grieve. We give them the room to, to have whatever experience. So somebody with depression, coming back to it, right? They're in session. They're like, I'm really depressed. I'm, I, you know, and I will basically, what they won't look at is that they have compounded grief. I'm like, that's a lot of grief. Right. Oh, no, no, you know, but it's, it's a me thing, right? So I've personalized it. No, no, it's a me thing. No, I'm like, but let's, let's look at it. Let's look at all that you've experienced in this year. That is a lot of stress on your body. 
And when you go undergo that stress in your body, your, you know, your, your, your nervous system takes time to work through it and feel safe again. Right. Um, and so what happens sometimes in session is you'll have a very nuanced experience where the person is crying or maybe they're, let's say they're numb or dissociated. Then they start to cry and then they start to laugh and then they start to get angry and then, right. And what I'll point out is look at, look at all that experience there. You weren't just, you weren't just numb or depressed or, you know, um, you know, tapped out. You, you were engaging in experience. You, you laughed with me. You're hilarious, right? And and so then there there's there's a joining in that and a witnessing in that, and the person feels seen and heard, and and they move through it a little easier. But it's in that moment, and they can then get stuck again. I mean, you know, that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. But there's a relief in that. And I like that you talked about. Uh, you know, like having someone witness the sharing of grief or the experience, right? And someone witnessing it. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about like, so uh, I talk about a lot on all the podcasts, you know, that, you know, I'm in 12-step programs and, and it's, you know, if you've ever been in group therapy, um, which was not, I did not like group therapy. Um, I, ca I can't speak on support groups because I haven't been in like been to an in-person support group. Um, so I can't speak on that, but in the 12 step meetings, you know, there's a lot of, uh, boundaries uh, or not boundaries, but like rules and how things are done. You know, like you have a certain amount of time to share, you know, you're not allowed to comment on other people's share. You're not allowed to respond to other people's share. It's just very much like people sharing and letting people share and listening to other people share. And, um, I'm wondering like, this is kind of a hard, like it, this came into my head and I don't know if I'm going to be able to uh, speak to it in a way that I, it just, in my head, I was like, oh wait, something might be happening that we're not really thinking about. So doing that in person is extremely um, therapeutic. Um, not always right at once, like not like you're going to do it once and be healed, but the act of like saying your truth, speaking what you would call like a secret, like something you're keeping inside that's not healthy, right? Saying it out loud to a group of people and they don't say anything back. They don't give you advice. They're not trying to fix it. They're not trying to like, which is a lot of times what happens with therapy. Like one of my favorite things is when I'm telling someone, oh, I'm having this problem. They're like, what does your therapist say? I'm like, my therapist doesn't say shit because that's not their job mm -hmm. to fix it for me. It's not their job to like even really make suggestions. Mm -hmm. It's just their job to kind of listen and help me find my own. And they go, what are they doing? <laughs> right? They don't get it. I like they're do really, it. It's, yeah. it's like when you, when someone, like when someone's not familiar with therapy and you tell them, like, they're like, well, you know, what is their therapist or what is your therapist? I'm like, oh yeah, that's not that their, their, their eyes, like their whole, you can see their brain kind of like, mm -hmm. like what? <laughs> like, what are you doing then? What is this? And so, but I'm wondering getting to like the, like, Okay, online now, we will see people openly grieve. And I think that's great as far as people sharing their process and, and normalizing grief and giving, you know, like I've seen people write really phenomenal things that are going through grief. And I think it's very like um, touching and very relatable and very important and amazing. However, what do you think? that there could be some not great things if people were just to rely on that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Or just even like, that's their way. 
I'm not saying there's any right way or wrong way to grieve, but do you, th- okay. Do you think the, the connection of, of relating to someone in that moment is, and that getting taken away and posting the grief story and piecing out, do you think you're, you're missing some, some valuable process yes. of it? I think. Okay. Right? Like, I don't think it has to do with yeah. virtual versus not. I think it has to do with the ability to run. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so in right. grief, people run. They they, yeah. they run. And, and, and some ways that I'd be looking at if someone is running is if they're, if they're problem solving, they're running. They're running away from it. Right? So if you're... T- I love a good problem solve. Yeah. I mean, that, that sometimes is practical, but not with grief. You don't meet goals with grief. You know what I mean? That's just not how it works, right? To process grief is, again, to bear witness to it and to feel received, okay? So if 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 somebody is uh, problem solving, that's a way that they're avoiding grief. Um, if somebody is sort of even placating, right? What does that mean? Can you give like, us an example? Like I, I, I do this because I feel like it's, and when I move my body this way, I feel like that placating comes from a state of anxiety, Right. So placating is someone like is having someone says, oh, I lost somebody and they start to cry. Oh, you know, I can see like they're just a lot uh, doing too much. Right. Doing too much. Right. OK. Right. Right. And you're still robbing the person of space. Right. Right. And what I'm saying is like bearing witness to is not avoiding or escaping any sort of felt state within yourself. So you can do it virtually, but you'd have to stay in it. Right. So I work virtually. I work. I do telehealth. That's what I do. But like, right. they can't go away unless they press end. <laughs> right? Right. So like, I'm leaving now. The room. Right. And I can see a lot of escape behaviors as somebody is trying to process through grief. And I, and I, and I name it. So I, and I'm really showing up at it. Right. Cause I'm like, Hey, I noticed you just changed the subject. What happened there? Then usually what comes up is a feeling. Okay. Right. right. That feeling is there. Right. Can you be with it? It's okay. Right. So that it, I am like validating, right. Like it's very normal to have that feeling and maybe you can soften in that. Right. Because unprocessed grief looks crazy. It looks very, what does that mean? It looks, it, it is that, is that why everyone's losing their mind yes, everywhere? Yes, like these, yes, like, yeah. yes, it's unprocessed grief. Right. Yeah. So unprocessed grief looks anxious. It looks depressed. It looks PT- like PTSD. It looks like lashing out behaviors. Right. It looks less Mental honest. Breakdowns. Yeah, it looks less honest. Menti bees. Yeah. Right. So usually if I see someone that's highly anxious or just sort of, I, I'm like, mm, what are they running from? Right. If, if they're everything, Jada. Fucking right. Everything. And so then I say, then I might say, I, if, if the therapeutic relationship is there, I might say, are you running right now? Where are you going? Where are you going? Yes. To a land of relaxation. Well, right. And so what happens is if unprocessed grief will show up in the middle of the night, it's going to show up as insomnia. It's going to show up as right. Overthinking these patterns that occur. Right. And these are strategies of avoidance. So for therapy is therapist is going to look at strategies of avoidance and we're going to try to like address those strategies of avoidance. So coming full circle, what you're saying is it's just too easy to avoid in that environment, right? You're going to see many people tapping out, you know, uh, saying their story and running. It's very easy also, you know, and it can be an exercise to put, let's say, post your grief online, post your grief in social media. 
you know, and I want to be really clear. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with posting your experience, and I think it's helpful. I'm, I'm talking about like if you're not talking to your friends, if you're not talking to people that are close to you, if you don't have a therapist, if you're not in a support group, if you're not that, and you're just mm-hmm. posting online and then piecing mm-hmm. out. I, I think there could well, be like there might be. Do you see how what you're doing some with your body for you to get some more help? You what- yeah. Well, nobody else can unless oh. they watch this on the socials. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm like. I'm like, what are you doing with your body? I'm doing the, I'm pretending, I'm pretending to do the post yeah. and then I'm dodging yes. and then I'm like, right. peace out. Then, I don't have to deal with sitting in that moment of uh, dealing with other people witnessing me. Mm-hmm. And there it is. Yeah. Right. So you did that in your body language. I'd be noticing that in session, let's say, right. So you're doing this thing with your body language. It tells me that you're trying to escape something and you're just sort of peeking in, trying to escape and but then sort of maybe seeing how you're received right checking in when you're ready Do I, how many likes did i get what if right. somebody heart that grief right 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 so yeah yeah okay so do you feel satisfied yeah. with that and answer? again yeah okay. well and i like again i don't want to dissuade anyone from putting anything on social media because it can be helpful mm-hmm. to have other people and it might be your first step in one direction. You know, you may be testing the water, mm-hmm. right? It, it, there's a lot of different ways and processes, and there is no one process or perfected process for anyone. You know, it's all a different road. Um, that being said, can you, we, you and I made a little list of different kind of categories of grief mm-hmm. um, because also I think, and I might have already said on one of the episodes that you know, the big ones we all get, right? Like the big ones we all tolerate, not even tolerate, but like we accept, right? Oh, a death of a family member, a death of a significant other, a death of a, of, a, of offspring, of a animal. death of a pet even. Mm-hmm. Yes, a pet is very high up mm-hmm. there because so many people really um, take that, uh, that job very, very seriously. And that relationship is very, very intimate. Yes. Um, but there are some other things that like, I think we don't address and because we don't address it or we don't validate it, it can become like these many unseen dirty corners of our emotional body that don't get cleaned up and could become compound. Like um, I have long since believed that the pandemic created a ton of grief. Mm -hmm. And just because maybe people have felt like they've gone back to their lives or a different life, doesn't negate the fact that there was a stretch of time where some people were losing people they knew, Mm -hmm. family members, the fear that they were going to lose people around you, the loss of economic stability, the loss of livelihood that for some people, myself included, has not fully recovered, Mm -hmm. you know, three, four years later. Mm -hmm. Um, There was so much, and just watching people grieve, there was so much watching people having to, and if you were a nurse, on the front lines, oh, you went to war. Mm-hmm. Like, and you're never going to change my mind about that. You guys went to mm-hmm. war. You have PTSD. You're not going to convince me different. If you don't, if you say you don't have PTSD, I'm going to assume you're a sociopath mm-hmm. because that was not what you mm-hmm. what y'all signed up for. Mm-hmm. You know, like you all signed up to like you know do your shift and, and vicarious deal with the trauma. People. Yeah, vicarious yes. trauma, grief, like all of that. Right, being yeah. with family members, yeah. not having an explanation. Oof. Right. It, yeah. Dealing with the family members who couldn't see their loved ones, letting people say their final words on FaceTime, on iPads. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how you recover from this. So, you know, just the pandemic was a grief that I think 
was compounded in its own way. And I think people, just because we've moved on past through whatever, like, I don't know necessarily that everybody really dealt with that. Mm -hmm. And I think if right now me bringing it up makes you irritated, that might be a little bit of a, like a a meter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for real. Like if I'm bringing this up right now and you're like, oh my God, you're right. Like, oh my God, thinking about that time. Yeah, there's a lot there that went on that, you know, I'm just so glad to be out of it that I haven't really had to like do anything to like, you know, I don't know. And then if you're like, oh, just quit talking about it already. It's you over. Like, well, but this is- it's over. We're, d- we're done. But this is what we're talking about with timelines, right? This doesn't matter what grief right. we've experienced. People have a timeline. They have a timeline that they're willing to be with it. And people know that, that are experiencing grief. Right. So let's say I'm still grieving, uh, you know, missed opportunities within the pandemic. That was that was very personal for me. Right. I had Colby March 1st, 2020, March 1st, 2020 ushered into a pandemic, you know, missed the cutoff of lockdown. Thank God. Right. But my parents did not get to meet him for eight months because they're in Canada. Mm -hmm. And when I did take him on the plane, there was still so many unknowns. So I was really right. taking a chance with an eight-month-old myself, shielded right. up, right? I, I, I had to yep. go to Canada and I had to be quarantined for two weeks and then I left. I, 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 right. Day after quarantine, I, I left, right? But that was, yeah. I was angry. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as my own personal experience and I've since then processed through it, but like I was angry at um, the feeling that people were denying it. Right. Denying the grief, denying my grief, denying the idea of a pandemic that, that this thing was happening. Um, I'm overreacting. Why don't you just do this? Right. That sort of compounds my grief. Right. It makes me very angry. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I have an associated process of that, which is judgment. Right. Because I can't control any right. of the factors. Right. So, you know, this is the point is like we are not going to escape grief in this lifetime. It is unavoidable. If you love, you will grieve. If you connect, you will grieve, right? If you don't connect, you will grieve. <laughs> You're going to grieve, <laughs> you know? And and so you better get real good at your process. That's a threat. No, you know, but that <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a threat. But that that is what it is. And that really is what therapy is, is being radical about your process, um, really owning it, uh, and, and sharing it with another person who can accept it and validate it as well and feel you know being feeling like you're being seen there and then you move through it a little bit easier yes um we talked already a little bit about anticipatory grief i don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that or elaborate expand on um anticipatory uh, anticipatory griefs and i think it can be you know i know Probably the most well-known one is like someone who is chronically ill or um, not chronically ill, but like terminally ill, right? You know that this day is coming, you know, you know, it's, you just don't know when. And sometimes those of us that are highly anxious can anticipatory grief every single thing with every single one all the time. You know, you know, the, I seem to, the more I love something, the more I am obsessed with the anticipatory grief of it, right? So pets, I do this with a lot, you know, people that are very close to me, um, 
when my anxiety is up, I am anticipating grief. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that or. You're, well, you're anticipating a loss, right? Because you will lose. <laughs> you're good, you know, and, and that's, not, gonna lose. that's not a very, you know, fun thing to think about, right? But it also forms how you want to be. So, yeah, it, you know, when we're thinking about anticipatory grief, the first thing that will come to mind is, you know, grieving, anticip anticipating the grief or the loss of a loved one due to chronic illness. Um, but there's there's much more. There's transitions. Like, let's say I'm, you know, and we'll, we'll get into this, right? But, like, I, I'm a dancer or I'm an athlete and I'm running out of time, right? I start to feel my mm -hmm. body uh, moving a certain direction and it's not looking good. And I recognize that there's this looming idea of a transition coming and I have to mourn the identity who I built myself up to be. And that is so hard, right? And then I have to reimagine who I am, but I have to let go. Oh, God, what does that look like, right? There's also, you know, anticipating a divorce. I work with couples who are trying to figure it out. And, like, for a therapist, you're not, um, I'm not really invested in the outcome. I don't care if you stay together, you get divorced. Right, because from your point of view and anyone who's not involved in those two people's situation, you're like, well, I just want what's best for these people. Mm -hmm. And it may not be for them to be together. Mm -hmm. And even though it's painful because maybe they prefer, you know, comfort over happiness or maybe they ha will have a hard time financially without mm -hmm. the situation or maybe because they have abandonment issues. And I know they have abandonment issues. Mm -hmm. It's just going to fuel that. Like you could still see past and be like, yeah, but this is this. It's. There's got to be something better than this. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? But, and if you can see that, you're like, look, it doesn't matter to me. You either find a way to to live in this or it, you'll be better off without it yeah, in a certain right. way. And also when you're working with couples or families, there's grievances, right? Things that were unresolved, right? So you know, that's like the complicated grief, right? Is it like something wasn't resolved and now I don't, I now how do I manage that? And when you're working with couples, sometimes, um, you know, you'll see management looking like excess of fighting or conflict, you know, uh, escalation of conflict, right? Um, and really, if you dig into the present moment, which is not fun for anybody, only for me, I'm just kidding, because I'm sick, no, uh, is, is that there is a grievance there. And if I can catch it in the present moment and I can get that person to soften, they become more directed, more aligned to what is actually going on rather than this distortion that is occurring, right, in behaviors, right? So we look at all these- Can you give us like an example of that? Like of the scenario and then let's, them softening okay, it? Okay, let's, yeah. let's look at a couple that is most likely entering into divorce, right? Okay. There's a lot of grievances. There's going to be a lot of things that they haven't really processed that probably need to be processed. Um, but in the present moment, there's going to be probably um, uh, behaviors that look like threats. Mm. You know, threats to a right. Like if you if you leave me, you're never going to see the kids again. And those things kind of aren't a major stated. one. People do that all the time. Yeah, but they don't state yeah. them. No, they're just like they're in behaviors. And and yeah, yeah. And so. Okay, you're, you're staying with the person for the reason of, like, to prevent the threat, right? But right. really, it's like this unprocessed grievance that needs to be processed in the present moment so we can release that behavior. Because that behavior is not in service of, right? So therapy, therapists 
it, you're looking at the value system as a map, right? I am anyway. Um, and I might start to understand that um, a couple has a strong value of connection and growth and these things. And so I'm going to go, oh, well, that's interesting. So that threat is really counter to that value system. So I help them identify, well, is that aligned to your collective value system? Will this help you, you know, really um, live the life, a life worth living, right? Uh, if you're holding animosity, you're holding these grievance, and then you're playing into these distorted behaviors, is that really going to lend itself to a good life for you? Your child, your ex, right? Um, yeah, so I, I again, the, the power is in the present moment. It always is. You know, you can do a bunch of worksheets in therapy, but the present moment, if you can sort of... Uh, hook into the present moment, allow yourself to receive it as it is, and really sort of externalize any symptoms that might occur, like any feelings, any behaviors, right? You don't make it about you. You really have a good chance to just actually move through it. And it doesn't mean that it's not going to show up. It doesn't mean that it magically goes away, but your resiliency and your grit to move through these experiences um, becomes, it improves, it becomes better. Right. Am I making sense? Now, yes, absolutely. Um, so we talked really, actually, I don't know if we did. Did we talk about shock? Like the this one I think is like what I think most people are very, as far as grief goes, comfortable in acknowledging mm -hmm. or comfortable in like the knowing of, which is like shock grief, which is like something, an accident happens. Someone, you know, something terrible happens out of nowhere you know, uh, there was no forewarning. It's mm -hmm. incredibly, you know, jarring, mm -hmm. um, that type of grief. Um, do you want to speak on that at well, all or have any thoughts? I have a lot of thoughts about that. You know, I bet you <laughs> I'm like, as you're saying it, I can feel myself well. Right. Right. Like here it is. Right. You can't, the, yeah. you know, people who are listening can't, maybe you can hear it, but like, you know, when you say that, and this is grief too, right? You're just saying something and here comes the flood of my memories. Right. And this is what you're helping someone stay with. You know, my, my dad had, oh my God. Okay. My dad had an aortic aneurysm in March. I received a text. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, healthy, you know, and out of nowhere, I get a text message from my mom that she's in the ambulance and he's not going to make it because you don't make it through that. Um, I was in a panic, like kind of felt like I was doing circles, you know, thank God I have a partner right. who can, is really good at crises because that's what she right. does. Right. Um, but yeah, right. like, you know, she was able to book the flights, do the things, right. Take care right. of the kids. Right. And so I flew home and, and I was there in the hospital. He did make it through, he made it through the surgery and, um, you know, it, but it was, it was, it was shocking. You know, it's something right. that's unexpected. Right. And my nervous system for three months following, he survived, right? And he's doing really well, um, which is great. You know, um, a strong, strong man, right? But like it, my nervous system was in fight flight for about three months after. I was dissociated. Right. I felt like I left my body and in, the, in Canada. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is 
he lived and you still, this is the right. Like the grief is still there, Mm -hmm. whether, you know, like, and maybe it would be more if he didn't, and maybe it would be different type, but it's still like that experience brought you to that grief. It had the, you know, the trauma of that experience of having to like speedway your through your speed, your way through that emotional experience is still legitimate. And I think like, like be and like this speaks to our how I view our society. Like you telling the story, how many people listening right now are like, oh well, he good thing he oh that's so Phew. great. Yeah. Like it brought you relief <laughs> to know that he lived right, right? Oh good, she doesn't have to deal with it. Oh good, she can move on. But look, you listen to her. It doesn't matter actually, because it still lives there mm-hmm. so painfully. Right, in, that in your experience, yeah, right in your body, right. So like I'm telling you, three months. Well, roughly three months, I, I I was in and out of my body. Like, that's my body trying to come back to safety. Because in that, there was a recognition of mortality. Right? It just was not expected. You know, I, and also, right, because this is why the five stages of grief do not apply, right? Doesn't uh, um, really, you know, inform this type of experience, Right? But also, like, in that experience, you know, because there was a coming together with my family, there was a deeper, closer connection, you know, being on the same page, like, making sure that we all are contributing, right? There's a really strong community factor and connection that occurred in that grief as well, which was transformative for my family, I believe. I mean, maybe I'm the only one that knows this, but I feel like it was... No, and you and I both had that, and that happened very pretty, pretty uh, uh, close timelines because your dad had his accident, um, right before my dad went into the hospital Mm -hmm. and, um, you were on the, he, he was already healed up and like, you know, moving forward when my dad, you know, went into the hospital, but you had talked about that, you know, kind of reuniting of your family and the solidarity there, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing happened with my family, my brother and I, you know, we're not particularly close. I do think we're closer now and we talk much more now than we ever did before. And it's not about like, you know, how's mom doing? It's just, we have our own, you know, sitting and waiting for my dad to die because basically we got him into hospice and he was on all the drugs and it was just a matter of how long it was going to take for the body to finally give up. Mm -hmm. You're sitting there and you're just waiting. Mm -hmm. You're just waiting and you have no idea. Um, when it's going to happen, you hope it's when you're there, but you, you know, we went home to sleep every night, you know, we didn't sleep in the room, um, with him. And that, that weird waiting, you just start filling the time with conversations. And so my brother would just be talking about, and I would just be talking about all kinds of things. And we've kind of found out that we have come around to much similar ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that we didn't once before. And so we have a lot more to talk about nowadays. And, you know, we've grown closer through talking about my dad and his situation and how he grew up and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So that both happened for us um, around the same time. So Mm -hmm. that was definitely a gift of that scenario Mm -hmm. for me anyways. I'm not sure if you saw it that way. I saw it that way. Um, I mean, I saw it that way for you and I also saw it that way for myself, right? And, and, and that's something that, that, that is, 
you know, embedded into the coming back to my body. Right. Right. Um, you know, also being at a hospital, like when you're not knowing if the person will survive, right. That your loved one is surviving, right. You're also in a hospital setting and there's a lot of like, beep, beep. Yeah, <laughs> so much. Yeah. What was that? You know? And, and yes. yeah. And it's like, it's, that is, is traumatizing too, right? The smells, sights, sounds, and energy yeah. of hospitals are something else. If you're energy sensitive, if you're highly sensitive, if you avoid hospitals, mm-hmm. if you don't like being in hospitals. I, mean, I don't think anybody likes being in hospitals, but I think there are some people who are much more affected by that mm-hmm. than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, and also, uh, if there are scenarios in grief where someone passes or has a near passing experience that tear families apart. Mm-hmm. And I do want to recognize that as well, because that could be an extra assault or an extra grief where you used to be so close to these people and now you're fighting over assets or you're mm-hmm. fighting over how, how, treatment, treatment plans, you know, like not everyone in, in surrounding these already tough decisions agrees. Right. And that can, I thought I knew my sister so well, I don't have a sister. I'm just saying that, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I knew, you know, what was best, or I can't believe they're not fulfilling my so-and-so's wishes. You know, mm-hmm. this is just again, and that nothing brings that out in people more than death or grieving and hurt and, you know, whatnot. Also so your own I do want to acknowledge that as well. Right. It, it brings up your own yes. mortality and this is not a fun, fun fact. We will all die. Right. Right. And, and, right. and many of us right. will incur, you know, many deaths are lifetime whether it be a death of a career, a death of a, a relationship, a death, death of a pet, a death of a loved one, our own health and wellness, right? We, you know, who we thought we were, right? This is all very important. And so, you know, again, not going to escape it, right? So you got to learn how to process it and you have to learn how to be with, with the present moment as it is and have a little bit more of a, um, you know, a curiosity about it without getting fused to it being you. It's a very human experience. Yeah. So, you know, some of the recommendations is to self-validate, right? That's what a therapist is going to do. A lot of validations, right? A lot of normalization. You're going to do a lot of that and and a lot of reflection. Um, And so you can apply that to your own experience every single day. And if you do that, um, You'll go. You'll move through any any hard emotion much easier. I want to talk about. I love that you said that. I agree with everything. Thank you. Um, and I have to agree because you're a, an expert. So I'm not going to argue with an expert. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about. This might be redundant, but I think it's still valid. So recovery, and that can be recovery from an injury. That can be recovery from a sickness. This can be recovery from substance mm-hmm. abuse. Um, there is so much grief in recovery, um, and it's so of the variety blend, right? Um, sitting in recovery rooms, one of the things that people have said is that um, recovery is the unthawing of grief, and I think that that's like so poignant because people come into these rooms and they are unthawing, and what they are unthawing is grief that is unprocessed. Mm-hmm. And that is usually why they are doing the substance or the behaviors that they're doing. Um, And so they get to the bottom of that usually in these recovery rooms. And I'm sure that is also what happens in the rooms of therapists is that unthawing of grief. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition, the kind of grief that accompanies an injury um, or a sickness, 
of just not being able to have and do the things that you were used to doing and having and missing out and being afraid, will I ever be the same again? You know, sitting in the place of having to recover from something is sitting in a state of kind of grief, if you want to be, at least that's how my experience was with um, my big injury. Um, I'm not sure if other people can relate, but that's kind of how it was for me. Is there anything you want to add to that? I I may think you're right, right? You have to, you know, it's best to look at behaviors as just this thing that happens when you don't process something. Right. And, and not to put a lot of attention to it. Yeah. Like alcoholism is a behavior and it's there to cope with something. Okay. And then my question is, what are you avoiding? Right. So I'm not, I'm therapists are not, well, I am not, I shouldn't speak to all therapists, all therapists, they all have different ways of working. Right. But for, for me, I'm like less concerned about the behavior as long as you're safe. Right. So I'm more about, you know, reducing harm. Yeah, but but really about like tapping into what you're avoiding. And if I can do that, I'm really tapping into the grief, right? So when you're looking at like any sort of recovery, recovery from an assault, recovery from uh, maybe um, maybe transition, maybe transition from if you're trans, let's say like, right? And you have you you inherently know that like in your transition to who you are, you're trans, right? Your transition to who you know you are authentically, um, the people around you are going to have to grieve. They're right. going to have to recover. And you don't, you know, right. you really don't want to put them through that. Or you're going to be abandoned, or there's going to be some sort of consequence to you be becoming authentically you, right? It, that's the deal, right? Even if you're coming out, you know, so this is LGBTQ plus A, right? ideas right coming out you're not the only one coming out everybody's coming out <laughs> like right, if, right. if you can do it alone that's why people do it in secrecy right Is it, you know right right you're all coming out of the closet and yeah i um, i have a i have a previous really i had a previous relationship with someone who transitioned um early i was you know like very young adult um one of my uh partners transitioned later in life and I was shocked at how different their personality was. Mm-hmm. So I ha- like I found myself kind of grieving who I thought they were, mm-hmm. or who they had presented to me or, you know, and I, I at the same time feeling really bad that this person didn't get to be their authentic mm-hmm. self. And I mean, we're talking opposite sides of the personality. We're talking someone I knew as very soft spoken, um, shy, um, uh, introspective in actuality, post-transition was outgoing, very not shy at all, like not introspective, like just like out there. And I, it was a trip because when someone says you call them their dead name, you are referencing someone who may not be present anymore. And that may be really difficult for people um, around you who very much loved who that person was, you know, or who you thought they were. And it is a little, you know, indulgent because you're like, but I had these, you know, I this is who I expected you to be, you know, like this is who yeah. you showed me you were, and that's what I wanted. Or, and or I had you know, a daughter. It may not have been. I had a daughter. Authentic. Yeah, I had a daughter. Right, I had a daughter, and now I have a son, yeah. or I had a son, and now I have a daughter, and I don't know how to process yeah. that. Yeah. Um. So that is an a, a unique kind of grief 
not unique. I mean, it's unique and it's, uh, I'm glad we're talking about it because I think it's a conversation that's ready to be had and something that there's a lot of room for right now um, to be recognized. Uh, you brought up briefly assault, like, you know, sexual assault, assault, um, kind of traumas on that level. Like, do you want to speak about those griefs a little bit or any experience in, in that you have in those uh, helping people process that? Yeah, well, you know, oftentimes I work with compounded grief, right? I'm working with compounded trauma, right? So developmental trauma, which is really the foundation for safety to be able to be resilient through other traumas that you might incur over a lifetime, right? And, um, you know, and so, yeah, assault is somebody took something from you, right? They took, they, they you lo- no longer have the control. Your power, yeah, your, power. your body. Yeah, your control, your yeah, your innocence, your, your if you your view if you, on life, yeah, if your, your safety. Maybe some. You had a hobby you liked, and they were a part of that hobby, mm-hmm. and then they fucked it up, and now you yeah. don't like that hobby anymore. And like, all the triggers yeah. around it, all the triggers around it, your hair. Say the person yanked on your hair, and you identified with your hair, right. and now your hair is toxic. You know. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you're, you're really having to process that grief and the, the, the transformation of identity, really. Right. Which is transition to transition. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, it all really, it, it, it's not rocket science, right? It's not like, right. You really can get down to all the, all the elements in our society. I really feel it. And the center of it is usually grief and trauma. Trauma, grief, right? It's traumatizing. You have to work through that process. And then there's grief that you have to work through. Yeah. I agree with that. And I feel that on a deep level. Um, Let's talk about ambiguous griefs. So this could be like a bucket of odds and ends. I think it could also be, you know, things that don't fit in other categories. I think this would also be... I have a really hard time with this one. Um, I'm trying to work on uh, my toxic expectations. (laughs) So, you know, like in the recovery rooms, there is some, a couple sayings that go, you know, like expectations are premeditated resentments or um, expectations are resentments under construction. And I'm not saying that you can't expect your significant other to remember your birthday or love you or give you things like it's not those types of expectations it's expectations like um my birthday's coming up and oh maybe everybody will throw me a giant surprise party and everybody I ever loved will be there and I will feel so this and I will feel that when this happened then it doesn't happen and now you're like oh my god but, devastated but neither did you you didn't voice it either right so you expected everybody to no of course it. not no no they're they're all expectations right yeah. You know, it's so, but I'm using that as an example as like, you know, a lot of times I have the profound ability to magnetize my desires to a place that are probably fairly unrealistic. And in that moment, it's not a big deal to dream big, but it is if when those dreams don't happen immediately, you're like depressed about it. Like that's not the best system. You know, I've said before, I have to try to make the bar so low I can step over it because that also has to do with my expectations. I need to set my expectations so low I can step over them. You know, like they have to be low because I will whip myself up to a frenzy. Then when those things don't get, you know, fulfilled, I'm upset and I'm disappointed. And all of that could have been avoided if I just managed my expectations a little bit 
better. Um, but so in that realm of since that's something I do, you know, these are when you have things you've planned for the future in your mind, like these little things that you have that you think that you see, and then your life may not be going that direction or something happens and that's not an option anymore. Like that can trigger some really deep, serious grief. And now it's not even something that happened. You're not getting anything taken away that happened. You're not having, oh, remember the good times with that thing or person. Like you don't even have that. There is like, how do you have like the ability to have nostalgia for something that's never happened is quite a head trip. And I think ambiguous griefs can kind of almost fit under that category because they're things that haven't happened, but they're things that you wanted to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think, I mean, when I hear all this, right, I hear about what I'm hearing is needs and need to be met, right? And expectation of that need being met and, and not the articulation of that need being met or the advocating for that need being met. Um, and when I think of that, I, I go into attachment. So my mind then goes attachment. And as a child, needs not getting met. Are you writing this down? Mm-hmm. No, I take notes <laughs> Do all the time. you? <laughs> yeah, I take, little, I take little notes so I don't forget what I want to yeah, say. It's, or... it's like an attachment grief, an attachment wound, right? You know, it's like my needs weren't met as a kid. And, you know, and I want this need desperately needs to be met as an adult. But yet I'm not being clear. Because I'm also probably pretty afraid of it too. In in right, if I'm, I'm I could get rejected, right? Because as a child, I'm used to that disappointment. People disappoint me. I'm disappointed by others. So it's really hard for a person who, who has had that attachment grief to be able to advocate for their needs, because with that comes the anxiety of rejection. I think. Um if you're anything like if you're listening and you're anything like me, I have so many conversations in my head that oftentimes I have to remind myself that I haven't said that out loud. And I, not only did I not say it out loud, but I didn't say it out loud to the right person or people. So if you're like, yes. And oftentimes I'll have conversations with people and they'll be like, so I said, you know, I said, I'm tired of this shit. You know, I, I want something better. And I'll be like, did you say that to them? And they'll say, well, no, <laughs> I do that all the time. I, I, because I want to know. I'm like, did you say that to them? Yeah. Or, oh, well, no, I said, you know, you, you ask people when people tell you they've said something, That's what I, ask I them, did say. you say that to them? No, I always say that. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you, you, did you that? say that? And yeah. then watch what you said that and then watch them be like, well, well, I wanted to, yeah. or well, sort of, but I didn't say it like that, you know, but, and it's like, oh shit, we're not saying what, no. what we really want to say. And then on top of that, not only do I not always, you know, say exactly what I was thinking, but, um, a lot of times I I'm having full conversations in my head about, I might not even know that I haven't said it, but then I'm also not saying it to the right people. So not even the person who needs to hear it, but like, if I'm, I said this in another episode, you know, if I'm like, I want to drink and I'm four and a half ish, five years sober, if I'm like, oh, I really want to drink. It's interesting that I'll say it to people who aren't alcoholics, but the last people I'll say it to is alcoholics. And those are the people I should say it to. Right. Because those are the people who I keep using that analogy because it's an easy one to understand. Like, you could be saying the things out loud, but if you're not saying it to the person who needs to hear it or the person you're having the conflict or a situation with or the people who are your people, mm-hmm. it may not be quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. No, 
well, you're not going to get your needs resolved. And yes, and also you're like you're do- you're still keeping us. You're doing secret. this. Like your secrets keep you sick. Yeah, you're dodging. You're weaving. Yes. You're un- you're avoiding. Yes. You're finding ways to avoid. Right. Right. Because you're testing. You're testing the waters. Yeah. Right. Because right. because if you're not used to your needs getting met and you were often rejected or you felt rejected or disappointed by others, you're likely going to express those needs to the wrong people as a way to get validation to right to accumulate data in order to give yourself some strength to say it to the right person. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're testing. Yes. You're testing the waters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And that, and that's, yes, what people do is it, but also you can speak to the, 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 the part of that person that is advocating for themselves too. Right. So someone says to you, yeah. And so what I said was this, 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 there's a part of them that is saying this, well, there's a part of them that's really advocating and there's a part of that that's powerful. And so you then sort of, you know, help that person uh, enlist that part. Now, can you speak, I know you can speak on parental grief. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, okay. Yes. So personal and, and, and what I see in my practice, but also what I see pervasive, right. All, all over the place is parents have children and they become parents and they have all bunch of unresolved grief from childhood. And AKA expectations. Expectations. <laughs> and then they vomit that on their child. Now, all of that is quite cool if you have a neurotypical child who is, you know, fitting within the box and able to right. succeed and, you know, basically makes you feel like you succeeded, right? That you're doing right. a good job as a parent. But all is very right. different when, when you birth the sort of neurodivergent types, the ones that don't, you know, um, play into um, societal expectation of what is good, what is strong. And this could also be if you have expectations, if you're fostering or um, adopting a child and you had expectations for how that was going to go like that, oh, this child would be so happy to have a home and maybe they suffer from you know, some trauma from that detachment and that abandonment or whatever that is. And Mm -hmm. having the kind of expectations of like just a parental expectation of I'm going to raise the kid this way. So they're going to be that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so you have to sometimes grieve what you thought, first of all, who you thought you were going to be as a parent. I'm, I'm certainly not who I thought I was going to be as a parent. (laughs) Like I thought I was going to be offering all wonderful organic non-GMO BS, you know, food groups and the child would lovingly receive those food groups. And I thought that like (laughs) my kid would sleep eight hours a night because, you know, or 10 hours a night or 11 hours, whatever the development. Can I just tell you, can I just tell you anytime I've been in Jada's kitchen, she's blending something and she's like through gritted teeth being like, I put flaxseed in here because he's got to get some kind of nutrients because the kid only eat chicken nuggets and then she'll throw a piece of broccoli in there. He can't taste it. He will, but he'll actually eat this though. Like every time, every time. Well, I've got, yeah. I've got your neuro, neurodivergent, you know, whatever that spectrum is, kids that are highly attuned, very sensitive to sensory yeah. um, uh, feedback. Yeah. And, well, one of them is, the other one is just doesn't give a shit. Uh, you know, but like, you know, they're both different, right? Different. They don't, and they're also very, very willful. Um, so they're going to do what they're going to do, you know? And so my, my control is futile. <laughs> it doesn't work. Right. right. 
Yeah, you're going to have to pick and choose those battles. You can't choose them all. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, some kids, some parents have children with high needs, right? And those high needs are very difficult on a day-to-day basis. And it doesn't mean that they love them any less, but there is zero space to um, feel received by that, right? You know, if you have a kid that struggles um, or is has high needs and you speak to somebody who doesn't understand that, right? So I'm I'm speaking to people that don't understand it, not, not a community of people that get right. it, right? I'm often going to be met with a lot of invalidation and dismissing, right? Have you tried right. this? Look, did you mince the, the, the chicken in small enough? No, my kid can spot that yeah. chicken. My kid can spot that 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 little right. tiny piece of pepper, right? You know, right. and there is no hiding it because he's got a uh, a very intense uh, sense of smell and taste. And so, mm-hmm. right? right. So there mm-hmm. is no advice for it, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And also, you know, as a parent with somebody who has high needs, you know, in a society that really has an expectation that what is good and 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 successful is very neurotypical. And mm-hmm. assesses the, whatever that is. Well, typical, normal, right? Like you know, this is successful, and they have assessments. But like, if being a sociopath was normal, then being empathetic would be not normal. Well, right, empathy. So I, you know, I have a theory going on. It's not necessarily validated, but empathy, empaths, people can look quite spectrum-like, right? So they look like they're definitely neurodivergent. Um, some of their behaviors can look like they're on the spectrum, but what's underneath it is very different, right? It's not a neurobiological thing. It's more about like how they perceive the world and the sensitivity that comes through their body, right? And how to process that being in the world. And so, yeah. Uh, because I just want to say if neurotypical is based on like white men, yes, which most things are, is. I don't want to be typical. <laughs> I would no. like to not be on that well, scale. Like right. I don't want to be... I don't want to be, uh, 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 that's, if that's the normal that everyone's striving to be, I'm good. Yeah. And so I, <laughs> right. And so I don't have your neurotypical children. I don't, I don't, they don't come from my genetics. Right. Um, and I recognize that that is really the neurotypical lens is really through a white hetero male dominant lens. And these assessments are created by white neurotypical men typically, right? You can't assess neurodivergency properly from that lens because you'll see it as deficit-based, right? So it doesn't matter though, because as a parent of somebody who might be neurodivergent, even though I'm a therapist, yes, and I have all the clinical information and I have the, the wherewithal to recognize this, as a parent navigating a system that is constructed in a way, right, that is neurotypical it's very frustrating and there's a lot of grief within the system too like you see where there's problems and then what you do as a parent or I do anyway I have to catch myself and not projecting into the future because at some point I will not be there to control things as if I have control right I will have to let go and my children will have to flourish in the system that we've created now hopefully the system is evolving and I think it truly is right based on my kids ability to access resources and uh things to help them be oh yeah 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 Mm -hmm. i mean and if anybody wants to come for me about the system being you know white hetero male you know normative whatever that is um 
I just want to point out where were all the ADD female cases in the Mm -hmm. 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. They didn't exist. And not because women didn't have ADHD, ADD, OCD. They were not being classified the same at their symptoms or whatever was showing autism. All of it was not showing in women the same way it was showing in men or in girls the way it was showing in boys. And so it just got looked over. But, uh, oh, it just doesn't affect them. Of course. You know, that kind of thing. So, But also neuro- neurotypical, even without like the gender lens, right? Like, you know boys gender gendered boys and neurodivergent boys who require um you know a lot of feedback in their bodies to feel regulated well they need to move so our systems our education is not really um you know uh, no sit still still. stop moving right so so those quit talking those boys stop talking stop socializing Yeah, yeah so even the boys right the girls would present more dissociated more we're gone, right? And and they just sort of crisscross applesauce, right? But some of the boys who are highly active that require that feedback in their bodies uh, are looked as problems. That's through a neurotypical lens. And some of our girls have the same needs, right? The same um, yeah. need for feedback in their bodies, needing to move and whatnot. And they're yes, considered I crazy. Was that. Wow, right. Right. Yes. Sit still. You Social can't... butterfly. Can't mm-hmm. stop moving. Dancing all the time. Like yes, yes, yes. So you cannot, you know, even ADD, right? It, it, it without accommodations of needs, getting your needs met, right? Uh, it's not really ADD, right? Like I mean, ADD in its most. Uh, you know, most. I'm just highlighting these as like, if you're not what everyone would consider normal what unfortunately what is the the status quo of like within the the realm of quote-unquote normal yeah my my grief my personal grief is more about fighting a system to get the needs of my children met it's not so much about like oh my god like it's not enough they're not gonna be this no no because my kids are pretty pretty darn cool right they're really neat and i want to have a system that can really support their 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 strengths. But again, in these assessments, which is my grief, my anger comes from the deficit model. It's like, you know, if so, you know, someone might be, might need visual uh, visual cues in order to learn, not just auditory, right? But that doesn't mean that they're not cognitively uh, advanced, right? Like or 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 average or whatever, but these assessments um, really just assess based on a neurotypical lens. And so that's my fight, right? It's like, mm, you know, and you're getting a lot of feedback and you're also dealing with experts too, right? And that, right, that right. really, you know, use these old assessments as a way to navigate the system. And I get it, you know. Right, right. Because there may not have been as, uh, enough research in one way or the other, but they're still the expert for right now. And in 10, 20 years, that may be outdated, much like our little five stages of grief. Mm-hmm bullet point. Um, and, and then I, th- I think it's also, you, you touched on this a little bit at the beginning of talking about parental grief, but also like some of the, what we would dub a stage mom or dad, right? Like someone who so desperately, like maybe they wanted to, I'll, I'm just going to use dance as an example. Like they wanted to dance as a child and they never got to. So then they enroll their kid and they like kind of live mm-hmm. vicariously through them. And, or maybe they were a dancer and they're like, my kid will dance too. And I'll be the best teacher. And the minute that kid, A, doesn't want to dance, B, never wanted to dance, C, doesn't, you know, 
hates it and either does it to fulfill their parents' need or doesn't and has to deal with that kind of like or does have the skills, you know, like the natural with, facility to right. Do it. <laughs> no, yeah, all the things, you know. So you know, there's I think a lot of room for that with parental, you know, that kind of like grief of mm-hmm. what you expected, mm-hmm. right? Which could also file under ambiguous griefs, mm-hmm. griefs, you know, things that you had expected, wanted, and that aren't happening. Yeah, and most people are not um, aware of it. Not aware yes, that that exists, of course not. and if you're aware of it, then you can do something about it, right? You can redirect right. your behaviors in a way that is more fitting to your value system, right? And I, my hope for this episode in particular is, I hope everyone on Earth listens to this episode just so that they can like give themselves some validation mm-hmm. for maybe some unprocessed grief mm-hmm. or griefs that they have not allowed themselves to have. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even saying they have to like, you know, go to a therapist, go to a 12 step and like really dig in, but just like acknowledge like, oh yeah, I qualify for that. Oh, hey, they're saying that that would be, that, that would be a grief. Yeah, I have that. You know, like that would be, I would, I would absolutely love for that, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that could in itself help so many people Mm -hmm. in so many ways and in turn help kind of the world. Yeah, Um, it would transform. uh, It would help transform um, everything. Right. If if people could just acknowledge it, its existence and coexist with it. Right. Right. And things that they, that they may just not know that they have the right to have Mm -hmm. maybe in this moment. Um, We talked before this podcast a little bit. I wanted to talk about the, a brief trajectory um, of, I know a lot of dancers listen to this podcast, or I hope a lot of dancers do. I'm a dancer. Uh, a lot of my circle is dancer. You are a dancer. A lot of your circle is still dancers or, or previous dancers, retired dancers, um, still dancing, dance teachers, whoever. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the trajectory of what that looks like. And you could interchange this with someone who's an um, an athlete as well. I think this is valid. Um, I want to talk about the grief cycle of just having that as a uh, profession, right? So I recall when I, from the minute that I decided, oh, I want to be a dancer. And I kind of decided that a little late, like at 16, I kind of was like, oh, okay, I think I want to do this. Um, and from that point on until I, like that you said, I was that, able that, to that actually. Was late. <laughs> that speaks to right? It, right? So that's already like the pressure, right? The pressure of, well, because like at around 16, 17, everyone uh, was deciding what colleges they want to go to, what what career path they want. And I still didn't really know. And I still wasn't like super sold on like, I want to be a dance. I ate, eat, breathe, sleep. I mean, I did danced a lot. I liked it a lot, but I was interested in performing. I was not like loving dance class. I was not like loving bar, you know, like I didn't like to sit and go to class. I did it because it afforded me the ability to perform. perform. But I was not someone who was like super into like being in dance class. And so I didn't understand that I could still want to do that, even though I didn't love the the process of how I'd have to get there, you know. And so that's kind of what took me a second. But yeah, 16 is not late at all. But already, already there's this, um, you know, uh, fast forwarded yes. age Quick. of what this running, timeline is, right? Time. Yeah. So you're running out of time, right? Yeah. So from 16 till about maybe 22, I want to say 22, 23, that was kind of a endless, uh, for me, an ambiguous grief. Like, oh my God, what if this doesn't happen? Oh my God, I didn't go to college. I, I moved straight out to LA. I did a training program instead. I've been spending my days, weeks, hours, minutes training. Everything is leading up to hopefully having this thing. And what if it doesn't happen for me? And what if I don't get to do the thing that I came out here to do? And what if already my dreams are not going to come true? And what if I'm going to be one of those people who moves home and gives up or stays out here and doesn't do it? And like, there was 
quite a bit of stress and that anticipatory grief of it not happening for me mm-hmm. that I dealt with from probably 16 to 22. Mm-hmm. And that was rough and it, it kind of accumulated in almost kind of like a little mental breakdown of like, oh my God, I've I've been out trying for two years. I just keep getting no's every time I'm, I'm getting cut, I'm getting cut, I'm getting cut. And at that point in time, you know, there was probably eight auditions a week and I'm getting told no and not even getting past the first cut or a typecast, which if anyone's unfamiliar, a typecast is where they line you all up and go down the list and just say no based on looking at you. Um, And you don't know why you don't. Yes. It's not like, oh, uh, you know, your outfit was bad or you're, we don't want blondes. No, no, no. They just like, please stay, please stay. Thank you. Please stay. Please stay. Thank you. And the thank you was thank you for coming, but we're not interested. Mm -hmm. And um, that kind of compound uh, uh, rejection was really starting to get to me. In addition, I was very rejected, rejection sensitive. I didn't know that at the time. Now I know that about myself. I am just rejection sensitive. So that was kind of tenfold. Then moving on from that timeline for me was working professionally. And from about 22, 23 to about, I want to say my early 30s, that's what I was doing. And I was happy doing that. And I was making it happen. And it was happening. And it was great. Um, Now, about my late 20s is when a lot of women around me started dropping, uh, like my peer circle started retiring, having children, moving on, doing something different, becoming yoga teachers, Mm -hmm. going back to school for something else, getting married, having children, moving back home to be around their family. Like That's kind of when it happened was my late 20s, early 30s. By about 35, my peer group was gone. I was the oldest, for the most part, um, of all the jobs I was on. And I, that is when I had my knee injury at 35. And that was incredibly devastating because it was an ACL tear. And it was a very, very, um, it's, a, it's a, a full tear. It is, you have to have a surgery or you don't have a great prognosis for doing anything super athletic in the future. I was able that I could cope. And I was able to do some dancing, but it was significantly reduced and I was not going to be able to dance how I really wanted to without the possibly the surgery. I did have that surgery. I did make a full quote unquote recovery after these things. You're never really fully in body or in mind because there is that fear that you might do it again. And so there's all that psychology behind it. After I recovered um, from that injury, 35, I am now 41. And I am geriatric in my peer group. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh, and I am now, there is not a lot of people my age mm-hmm. that are still doing it. If they are, they are older than me. Like they've gone, done other things, and now they've come back. They're on their, like their second run of the entertainment mm-hmm. industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in this category now, I have changed my, you know, preferences of what kind of jobs I want to do and not do. But it is getting more like uh, I, I'm not interested in a lot of the things anymore. So I have to find a way to transition somewhere else. Now, I still very much like to teach dance. I like to put on dance events. I still like to perform. I still like to dance in certain um, avenues. Um, I still like being creative. I still like performing. Um, but there's definitely an impetus of me needing to find something else or move on from a certain portion of it. And I am literally kind of the last holdout. Like it's just most, especially women, don't 
get into the 40s of doing this thing unless they've gone and come back or they, you know, it, it just seems to be kind of the abnormality. And so me at 40, 41, even late 30s is looking at the end, like a retirement, right? Now, most people retire at the age of 65. So at 65 or 70, whatever, they're like, I'm now done and ready to live out the rest of my life on my unemployment and live these golden years, right? That's kind of the thing that is still kind of thought of. Um, Most of us are not going to be doing that, though. No, we're not going to be doing that for a lot of reasons, which we don't need to get into today. But like, that's kind of what has been modeled Mm -hmm. previous to Mm -hmm. us. So to have a retirement, uh, because most people at 40 are thriving in their careers. They're making the most money they've ever made. They're able to ask for the most money they've ever made. They still have about 20 years left in their careers before they would even consider Mm -hmm. something different, right? And at 35, 40 or 40, it's now the end. And that is really old for an athletic Mm -hmm. situation. Like most people if you're a gymnast, if you're a figure skater, if you're like some of the basketball player, like those professions, that shelf life is even less. And now there are always, you know, the exception to the rule, but they are the exception. Um, so now there is the grief of the what is next, leaving behind the things that aren't for me anymore, leaving behind the abilities that I don't have as much and have been, you know, since my knee injury, even that has been a decline of what I can do mm-hmm. or what my body is, you know, able to do. Um, and so, you know, just to track that timeline, that's like, you know, I had a good run there where there wasn't, you know, as much grief. Uh, Other than just like the loss of jobs that I wanted, you know, I still got told no all the time. I still was like the one person who didn't book the job of the eight that got capped, you know, like that shit happened to me all the time, you know, so the first thing I want to, I didn't avoid that. The first thing I want to mention is this rejection sensitivity. This is a very TikTok-y sort of, you know, idea. It's a, it's a, it's something you're going to hear a lot that's paired with ADD, right? Is Mm -hmm. that you have this rejection sensitivity, this, 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 this morphia or right? Okay. Dysphoria. Dysphoria, Sorry. Dysphoria. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't think we need to call it that. I think we can just call it to, um, like it hurts. (laughs) Yeah. Right. We don't need to make a thing about it. Yeah. But rejection sensitivity sounds so much more professional. Yeah, it does. I feel like I get told, I I feel like I get, I would get taken seriously if I'm like, look, I'm, I'm just, I reject well, it, says that it's I- a, it's a, it's a, <clears throat> it's a barrier to experiencing, but the thing is it just sucks, right? It sucks to, yeah. to, to put your whole heart into something and to experience a no, especially when your whole heart is in something over and over and over again and still show up and still continue yeah. to do it anyway. Like that's not the norm, right? That's not no. what, what quote unquote normative people do. They, you know, no, you do one interview, maybe a couple interviews. Yes maybe a second interview. Yes. yes. But also, yeah, but also you are, you are building uh, grit through the process, right? So there's a, a, is that what I built? Cause I don't feel like I did uh, build any well, of that. If you sustain this long as a 41 year old woman in an industry that really values youth. Uh, yeah. You got some grit. You got a good- what if I make Roderick bleep out every time you say my real age? I might make him bleep it out. You, you have to bleep out your own. Uh... Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Bleep. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, go but, ahead. But that's, but that's the thing is like, we're running out of time. We're running out of time. You're running out of time based on a value system that is predicated by the world, right? We're talking about constructs that we've, that, that, that certain people have created a value based on age, ageism, which is also, you know, as you begin to age, right, you, you really recognize that ageism is a thing. Right. If you're 70 years old, well, you better retire because you don't have the cognitive prowess in order to endure really tough, uh, tough, um, uh, stressful situations. So you're not valued. Men will experience that, too. Right. It's like they're less powerful once they hit a certain age. Now, who that are they? That's grief. Right. So as a dancer, you're just experiencing it much earlier than normal because a lot of the industry is predicated on what you look like and where you fit. Right. And so, you know, people that come back to it are most likely, hopefully reimagining who they are. They're not like coming back. No. Yes. And this is the thing. There's also, I, you know, there's also the fact that as you get older, you're probably less willing to deal with bullshit. Mm -hmm. And there is so much bullshit that comes with, these types of professions mm-hmm. because it requires so much of you without getting paid. So it requires you to get ready to show up, to put your time on the line without making a check before you can, you know, you, you're already working in deficit mm-hmm. before you can even get a job. And that is incredibly financially taxing. It's emotionally taxing. It's physically taxing. It's time taxing. It's like, so a lot of that also, as you get older, unless you've had a refresher, you've stepped away from it for several years and you, you know, have like that energy back again. If you've been, you know, pretty consistent on that grind, there's a burnout that I think is just, you know, well, and for you, depth, it's, it's everybody's, unavoidable. Yeah, everybody's a different process, right? Some people um, had a lot more support financially to endure right. some of the the bumps so yeah your rejection sensitivity you know can also be layered with this idea that like if i fail i'm homeless or if i'm I not going to survive yeah i'm not going to survive like my basic needs are not going to get met that's a little scarier than if if you're supported by your your family system to you know sort of uh, reach your potential which which i was right like i can i i knew for the most part, that I had a safety net, right? It was much easier for me to tolerate some of the these bumps than I think if you were felt like you were alone in it. But also, someone like you, when I think about you and your career, and I think about your resiliency to do so, you know, there's there's so much more conviction there, which means that there's so much more at stake, and there's so much probably more, you know, in letting go, too, right? So I don't know, every, every, yeah. everybody has an individual process, but yeah, you're just, you're speaking to the, the, the shelf life being uh, starting much earlier and ending much sooner. And what athletes and dancers, artists that use their body, uh, have to do is they have to, you know, transform beyond their body and figure out who they are beyond that much earlier than status quo. Yeah. So you ain't status quo. Yeah. 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 Okay. I have two last questions for you for today. What do you want people to know about grief? I know it's a lot, but like, can you just sum up something like it can be very simplistic or it it can, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to feel good. 
right away, but it's important, right? So if, if I could say anything, it's like to have the courage to be with it. And hopefully you have people in your life or you can now advocate for people in your life who can hold the space for you to endure life, to be able to be in these moments that are hard and they can sit in it with you. Don't try to do anything about it. There's nothing to do about it. If you start noticing control patterns or things that you're trying to do to manage it, let go. It ain't gonna work for you. It's gonna it's gonna bring you into a deeper hole. Mm-hmm. That's right. And my last question <laughs> is, um, no, it's perfect. And my last question is, um, I like to say we don't give advice on the podcast, but. I will ask for your suggestions. So what is your suggestion for people or for someone who might be suffering right now? Know that you're suffering, right? So the very first thing, if you think you might be suffering, you know, you might start noticing symptoms, right? You might not be noticing maybe depressive states or anxious states or panic, like that hyperarousal, hypoarousal, sort of your nervous system feels off. Uh, you might be noticing yourself isolate. You're, you're, you're having a hard time. And if you are, if you can notice that, then you can enlist the support. And it doesn't necessarily mean therapeutic services, although I obviously strongly believe in it, um, you know, but finding a therapist or finding a support group or just finding friends that can be with it. You need community. We don't do this alone. You can't do this mm-hmm. alone. And I will add some links like I always do to access, find a therapist near you and stuff like that in the show notes. So check those out if that speaks to you. Jada Ellingham, licensed psychotherapist, <laughs> LMFT, got a master's. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming back on Gray Maybe and lending your expertise. I always love talking to you on the pod and off. Mm-hmm. Um, I get so much free therapy. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's unethical for her to charge me or say she's giving me therapy, but she can't help it. So, you know, appreciate you. And I'm so glad you're back. Yeah, I love you. Love you too. Thank you. Jada never fails to help me make sense of things. Everything feels fixable when you have a toolbox. Or at least, if you can't fix it, you have a way to patch yourself back together in an effort to try and keep going. Her important emphasis on process and working through feelings instead of just managing them has been so helpful. Her validation for complicated grief and how grief sometimes feels like relief is important. And her validation that the five stages of grief isn't really that accurate and most likely may not embody your own experiences with grief is freeing. I am so lucky to have her as a friend and confidant, and I'm so thrilled she continues to be a guest on this podcast. If you're listening to this episode and you're experiencing grief, welcome, and I hope this helps your journey. You're not alone. Just a reminder, for anyone who needs to hear it, you don't need to have experienced a giant catastrophic event or a death to experience grief. Know that whatever you're feeling, there are those among us who have probably felt it too. You're not alone. If you're listening and you have someone you love in your life that is grieving, welcome. You are also not alone. We as a society 
have a long way to go in being able to tolerate and help those closest to us manage grief. I've included a link in the show notes for the do's and don'ts, which I'm going to read here. Don't assign positive meaning to their loss. In our effort to encourage and support the griever, we may try to project the current situation into a better future way too soon. Saying, time will heal all things, is not helpful. Prophesizing a future positive meaning on top of the grieving person's crushing and devastating loss tends to minimize the griever's current agony, essentially suggesting that they sweep their pain under the rug while focusing on some potential positive long-term outcome. Stay in the moment with the griever. Follow the grieving person's lead. Be an attentive, active listener. Allow the griever to take the conversation where it needs to go. Make room for plenty of silence. Don't jump in to fill space with unnecessary commentary. Sometimes before a two-way conversation can even begin, the griever just wants someone to sit with, literally or virtually. No questions or words of comfort are needed to fill silence. Presence is often what the griever really needs. On their own, sometimes the grieving person will identify a silver lining or hopeful thought that adds meaning to their loss. This is a normal and often constructive way to cope with grief. Remember, the griever is the only person who can know what this loss means to them. Only the griever can make meaning of their experience. Once they do so, it's appropriate to support them in their newfound hope. Use the name of the lost loved one. While you are comforting the griever, all of their emotions are tied up in the loss of their beloved. Saying their loved one's name out loud is a way of validating the life of that person. Say Anne, not your sister. Say Alan, not your son. Say Stu, not your husband. Don't ever be afraid to mention the person lost. Grievers want to talk. Memories are all that remain after a loss, and talking about the person who died helps to keep them alive in broken hearts. Refrain from platitudes. Refrain from platitudes, religious or otherwise, like, they are in a better place, or time heals all things, or everything happens for a reason. Don't pretend that you know the answer. You don't. No one does. As a person who desires to support a griever, pay attention to what you say. Never say anything that starts with the phrase, at least. Comparing and contrasting your own grief experiences or dreamed-up hypothetical ones with the reality of the loss that just happened is missing the mark in several ways. Making your loss the topic of conversation is asking the grieving person to switch their focus and empathize with your grief at a time when the total focus should be on them. Don't say, I know how you feel. You don't. Seems to me describing how something worse could have happened represents a thwarted attempt to say something, no matter how unhelpful. Stay out of your empty word, ill-informed autopilot script. Choose not to go there. Be open to the expression of any emotion. As an active listener, be open to any emotions the griever may express through verbal or nonverbal means. Anger, yelling, silence, rage, disbelief, denial, crying, pacing around the room, shouting, rocking back and forth, wringing hands, clenched fists, avoiding eye contact, needing to be held, avoiding touch, etc. 
Be observant about what the griever is expressing, overt or subtle, and allow a safe space to be in that moment. Do not in any way tell them not to feel what they are feeling. Remember anniversaries. Try to remember anniversaries such as the birthday of the person who died and the anniversary of the date of their death. Sending a card or a text will let the griever know that you are remembering too, reminding them that they are not alone. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you were able to find something relatable in today's episode. If you'd like to show your support for this podcast, consider making a donation on Spotify. It would also be very helpful if you could rate, share, comment, and subscribe. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor, Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel, Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. Special shout out to supporter, Patty Olgan. Until next time, bye for now.